Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 167 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing you the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Jim Mullen. Jim Mullen was appointed the Chief Executive Officer of Second Bite in May 2016. Prior to this role, he was working in the UK as the Chief Executive Officer of The Big Issue, the world's most widely circulated street newspaper. Before that, he was the founding general manager of Kibbleworks, a Scottish social enterprise that provides care and education to young people in need. Mr. Mullen trained in youth work and his career spans community education, economic development, light engineering, social care and print media. He's lectured in social enterprise, entrepreneurship and corporate governance at Glasgow Caledonian University. Harriet Watt University and the University of the West of Scotland and provided specialist contributions outlining the impact of social enterprise on the economy for both Scottish and UK governments. Mr Mullen was awarded a Distinguished Talent Visa by the Australian Government in recognition of his work internationally in the field of social enterprise. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Jim's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in Australia, comparing it to that of Scotland. We'll get Jim's insights and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Jim believes can be done by governments to create stronger opportunities for positive social change. So Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us. Tom, delighted to be here to join you on the podcast, and really looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. So to kick things off, Jim, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in the social enterprise and not-for-profit sectors? Okay, I am, um, I am the son of a, a train driver and a civil servant. I came from a working class background in Glasgow. Um, our, in our household, there were two religions. Um, there was Roman Catholicism and there was trade unionism. And these two things were completely interchangeable. Um, I, I grew up in, in one of the, the poorest parts of my home city. And um, and when I was growing up, my real heroes were youth workers and social workers who provided um, out-of-school opportunities for young people to participate in recreational activities, but mm. also um, to begin to um, help these young people um, form a view of the world and begin to um, consider elements around their their personal development um, beyond just playing soccer or, or pool or table tennis. Yeah. Um, they gave their time um, enthusiastically um, and they also gave it um, in a way that recognised 
that lots of the kids they were dealing with came from very, very difficult circumstances. Mm. Um, and they helped to build, um, they helped to build, for want of a better description, aspiration and paint a picture of a world beyond the housing estates that we lived on. And yeah. um, painted a picture of a world that we could engage with. Um, they, they provided, I think, in lots of cases, um, for lots of the young people they dealt with, hope where none existed. Yeah. And frankly, having participated in that process and having watched these guys at work, there was never anything else that I wanted to do mm. than to, to follow in that path. Um, I, I, um, I trained in, in youth work and started working in my home early area, but um, I pressed out into a, a landscape that was rapidly being changed um, by Margaret Thatcher's Conservative administration, yep. who had um, decided that the economy of the UK needed to change wholesale and that um, our industrial past wasn't going to be our future. Now, the reality of those decisions were that, in hindsight, they were probably correct. However, they didn't have to be implemented with the level of, of um, frankly, brutality mm. that they were. And so as I pressed out into this area, wanting to work with young people and, and help them to develop and grow, um, what became crystal clear immediately to me was that um, that the opportunity for um, for employment was narrowing for this entire group, mm. and therefore we had to begin to become engaged in a process which was which was at the time um, completely new and completely revolutionary, but which now is described as um, the building of an intermediate labour market model. Mm. Um, and so my youth work um, background very quickly changed to um, what is also now known as, as community asset development, where effectively we begged, borrowed and steal, stole every facility that we could possibly find, cobbled together some tradespeople and some money and put young people to work, generating work experience and, and real skills that they could then take to a, sh a shrinking labour market. Mm. Um, and, and so that was my early trajectory into um, what was at that time described as community business and is now described as, as social enterprise. So, I mean, that's the kind of pointed story of, of how I got to engage with this, um, with this, this work and um, my commitment to it and where the commitment comes from. Wow, it's a it's a really fascinating journey, Jim, and I'm curious to hear about you know how that led to your work as CEO at Second Bite and some of the work that you're doing in the organisation at the moment with Second Bite and the sort of impact that you're creating each year because I imagine that that extensive experience has really helped you to to take this this organisation to another level. So yes, I, I mean I think I I think so I think I've benefited. From from a career that had that early grounding yeah. and then had a renaissance in, in Scotland um, round about the, the turn of the century with um, with the work at Kibble. It was, um, we were crystal clear that um, that our organisation was established with 
a social mission. Yeah. But we recognised that if it didn't operate as a business, um, then it wasn't going to be sustainable. Mm. So the balancing of those two elements um, and then through subsequent um, role at the big issue where uh, we had the UK's best known social business, which at that time didn't need to be reorganised, it just needed to be refocused a bit, mm. um, has meant that I, I've kind of developed a, a pretty entrepreneurial view around what the possibility is for, for the entire not-for-profit sector, but probably social enterprise specifically. Yeah. Second Byte had, when I arrived, Second Byte had, um, had a lot of very good um, relationships, both in terms of the, the corporate sector and in terms of the philanthropic sector. Mm. Um, but they were a bit underdeveloped. And, um, and the organisation had grown rapidly because... Um, it had started out as a very Melbourne-centric local organisation yeah. and then had picked up Coles as a national partner and suddenly exploded into this national organisation. So lots of the growth and development around um, the way the organisation had built was pretty organic and pretty unstructured. So mm. there, was a, there was a kind of formalising process that needed to take place within the operation but there was also that entrepreneurial piece about we have a number of great relationships here, but they're really underdeveloped. Let's begin to have a conversation with our partners mm. um, about what the what the economic and social benefit is for both organisations building that out. Yeah, um, and and consequently led to our our relationship with Coles becoming much much more extensive. Um, is is um, is operating on a basis that both organisations understand what the cost benefits are, mm. what the social outcomes are, what the environmental outcomes are, but also what the economic impacts are. Yeah. So the, so we built the traditional social enterprise triple bottom line thesis into the way that our traditional not-for-profit works. And what that's done is that's given us a language which we can now use with all of our corporate partners mm. um, and a language that they understand absolutely, both in terms of, um, of of their anticipated CSR outcomes, but also, frankly, at a transactional level where they really do understand what the economic value is yeah. of, of building out the partnerships. So I think that's how it's manifest itself across Second Bite. Um, and the other thing that we've done, I, I think, incredibly successfully is because of that focus, um, we now have a productive output which has seen um, our organisation's output grow by over 90% in the last three years. Wow. But our costs have only grown at about 44%. Mm. And that's an accelerating picture. So last year, um, the last financial year, our costs um, have grown by 8% but our output has grown by 40%. Yeah. So we're tracking, um, we're tracking on the basis that our sustainability proposition, we can't sell the food we collect. We can't generate income from that. Mm. There is no point in charging for it. The, the economic situation of the people and organisations we support mean that they can't participate in the normal um, food sector. Yeah. Um, so there's no sense in us 
then levying a charge on top of this. We've got to deliver our service free of charge. Mm. But what really resonates with the philanthropic supporters we have is we drive, or I think we drive, better value per dollar input than certainly anyone else in our sector. And I would argue um, the vast majority of organisations across the country. So at this moment, our metric is that if a dollar comes into our organisation, we produce enough food, equivalent amount of food, for five and a half meals. And so I do this trick at public presentations where I talk about the organisation and then I put my hand in my pocket and I pull out a dollar <laughs> and I ask the assembled audience how many meals can they produce for this dollar? And they all look at me as if I'm daft. <laughs> and then I tell them that we produce five and a half meals for every dollar that comes into the organisation and we do over 100,000 times a day, every day, every year. Yeah, it's huge impact. That's that's something to be really proud of as an organisation, Jim. So I imagine running organisations of this size and scale bring along many challenges. So tell us about some of the challenges that you've come up against in leading organisations like this, Jim, and, and how you've navigated your way around them. I, I mean, I think that there is... So I think sectorally, um, I think our world attracts um, attracts both um, staff and volunteers who, whose commitment is in their heart. Yep. They are, they are motivated to become involved in the work because they genuinely want to, either as a career or in their own time, make a difference to life around about others. Yep. That can generate a mindset which um, can be a challenge when you're trying to run your organisation in the most business-like fashion that you mm. can. Yeah. It creates a tension there. Um, and I think that most of the challenges or a lot of the challenges that, that people in my kind of role face stem from that or flow out from that. Yeah. Um, we, we are not in the business of, um, of refusing help. Um, we're not in the business of, of discouraging people from participating. But they need to understand there are a few facts of life that can often be a challenge for them. And one is... Um, one is, and it's, it's, um, um, it's a phrase I first heard at the Social Enterprise Alliance of America many years ago, and that is, you can't help poor people if you're poor yourself. Mm. Therefore, the, the management of your resources and your organisation and your focus on your sustainability and, and your viability has to be absolute and has to be total. Yeah. Now, that is not a case, and this is, I'm not making a case here for the kind of pastiche view of a hard-nosed private sector operator. Yeah. I'm not saying that. But I think if you reposition where your heart sits, you begin to then recognise the realities that confront you. And it's the communication of that message which is also always the challenge for mm. you. I mean, frankly, Tom... Um, the, the the workforce in the not-for-profit sector and and certainly a large part of the volunteer cohort that work in the not-for-profit sector could teach Gandhi about passive resistance, hmm. and so and so you need to be completely tuned to the notion that if you're not constantly in that communication space, if you're not constantly leading the line on what our purpose is, why we're doing it 
but what the realities of, of, of managing through that process look like, you can have difficulties. Yeah. The other thing that, that all of us face is scaling up comes with all of its own challenges. Um, the, the, the step out of um, an organisational culture or an organisational headspace which recognises that you're just a small organisation doing very nice work in a very limited area mm. um, and what it takes to move yourself out from that and achieve a much broader impact across a much more um, challenging geography. And trust me, of all of the geographies I've ever worked in, Australia is the most challenging wow. by some distance. Wow. And I, I use distance advisedly. Um, to make that change often means that there are people who can come on the journey with you, but there are also people who probably can't. Mm. And, and that can lead to um, that can lead to long hours of soul searching, difficult conversations, and staying true to the purpose and staying fixed to the mission is the only sanity instrument you can bring to that, mm. that you, you completely understand that the, the challenges you face and the difficulties you face and the, the interpersonal challenges that come with that are all in pursuit of a much bigger mission. And I think that's I think those are the kind of things that that all leaders of all organizations toil with all the time. I've never met anyone in this kind of role who finds any of this stuff easy. Yeah. I think we all find it um, on a very personal level very challenging. Yeah. To make these things happen and to and to move on. Um, I've never been able to develop the kind of hard skin that allows me to make any of these decisions, particularly respect with respect to workforce. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so those are the kind of things that we, we all encounter as, as part of this process. There's some really interesting observations there, Jim. So thanks for sharing those. So, I mean, in this extensive experience that you have both in, you know, the UK, Australia, you know, spent time settling up Kibble Works in, in Scotland as well, how have you then seen the social enterprise sector transform and change over the last five years or so? And I'd love to hear your insights on what you believe the key differences are between the UK and Australia. So, so I think that the so um, cards on the table, Tom. Yep. Um, I'm really old school when it comes to this. I have never. Um, I've always struggled with the with the broadening of the social enterprise family yeah. um, to incorporate for purpose or for profit um, organizations. I've, I've, I've always, um, I've been guided by the great um, Jim Fruchterman from Benetech in the United States, who at one of the world forums um, on his platform said, if you've got a really brilliant idea that is a great business, and it's transformative, and you want to have a social impact, then it might be actually smarter just for you to set up that private enterprise and then decide what you're going to do with the profits mm. because people understand that clarity. Yeah. I think there is, um, I think I've always been a bit concerned about the, the erosion at the margins of 
my personal view is that the social enterprises at their heart um, should be geared to that constant tension and constant balance of of income and mission and that all of the income that's generated, all of the margin that's generated is reinvested totally in, in the mission. I think that that is in terms of um, in terms of our own um, hygiene process and our own, for want of a better description, environmental process of recycling. Yeah. I think we recycle profits for more good. Mm. And, and that has always been my view. That's not, that is, um, that is uh, a view that is becoming less prevalent now as this becomes a much broader church. And I understand why some of that work is going on. I think that the, I think interestingly, one of the, the, the opportunities that Australia really missed, that the UK and in particular Scotland really picked up on was that we recognise that every major provider, not-for-profit provider of government services in the UK and in Scotland are absolutely entitled to describe themselves as social enterprises Mm. because effectively they have a trading contract which has a social output and whatever margin is generated from that is reinvested in the purpose. Yeah. I think that the, I think what that did in Scotland and in the UK, it meant that we had housing associations, you know, multi-million pound turnover organisations who immediately identified with the badge, were immediately um, drawn towards being part of that, that broader organisation, had a, a crystallisation, if you want, of of a, an updated description of what they were about, mm-hmm. and that helped to create mass and scale roundabout what at the time was quite a nascent idea. Yeah. It was it was really underdeveloped, and and the opportunity what happened or my impression of what happened was social enterprise in Australia when it was first touted was painted as something and which was new and shiny and different. And I think there was a a real miss there in terms of a broadening and an inclusiveness, Mm. which could have brought some of the really bigger players. Um, I mean, because let's be perfectly frank, um, we talk about, we still talk about Salvos and we still talk about Vinnies and we still talk about all of these organisations as charities, Mm. when in fact the bulk of their, their, their income comes from a traded position with government. Yep. They are a major provider of service to government. Mm. And therefore, by any definition, that trading is what generates the, the both the social mission and the economics of the organization. So that that felt like that felt like a presentational challenge that I don't think Australia's ever really overcome. Yeah. But which has become absolutely part of the landscape in the UK. If you look at the breadth of organisations in terms of membership for um, for Social Enterprise UK or for um, the the for Senscot or for any of the organisations in Scotland, you'll see this incredibly broad church of organisations which in this country don't 
regard themselves as being social enterprises, even though by any definition they clearly are. Yeah. So I think so. I think that was. I think there was a bit of naivety around that, and I think it was there was an ownership which wanted to paint something that was bright and shiny and new, whereas if it had been presented differently, you would have found that structurally and in terms of um, in terms of participation, um, I think the whole idea would have got off the ground much more quickly in 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 Australia if that definition and that view had been more widely um, expounded and, and more widely um, delivered to a, a broad range of organisations, you would have had the network. And that, so that's been missing. Yeah. I suppose the second piece is um, it still also feels like in, in terms of thought that there is, there is just that lag. I mean, I'm, I'm very impressed with the way that um, the organisations like um, social traders um, have begun to work in procurement. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it is um, it's clearly an avenue that has a lot of opportunity around it. Yep. But in in the UK and in Scotland, um, um, they've moved past procurement. They are now at commissioning. And it's in the design of services that you can most be most effective in terms of broadening social enterprise participation. Mm. Because with the best will in the world, having some kind of procurement process, which may or may not have a weighted element in the tendering for services generally, the professional players and the commercial players in that space are very, very well aware of how to balance tender bids um, to, one, um, make sure that they get the lion's share of what they're looking for, and two, frankly, to find other ways to exclude participation from a broader network of social enterprises or not-for-profit organisations. Mm. So I think for government, in terms of policy and in terms of how you could begin to build this out in Australia, I think it's about service commissioning, because I think if you design outcomes in as part of the, the commissioning process, then at that point, there is a much higher likelihood of participation from a wider range of organisations in, in, the, in the provision of government services. Mm, yeah, some really interesting insights and perspectives there, Jim. Thanks for sharing those. So coming back to, to the social entrepreneurs themselves or the aspiring ones, what advice would you give to them to really help them take their idea or their, their sort of early stage social enterprise and, and create the maximum uh, positive impact possible? I think these, I think in this particular conversation, there's a, there's a challenge. Um, the, 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 modern, um, the modern approach to, to this kind of discussion, and you see it in, in entrepreneurship generally, yeah. is... Um, you have the, the exception that proves the rule. Mm. We have all of these social, these superstar entrepreneurs who talk about their epiphany, this moment of enlightenment when it all just fell into place and they knew and off they went and everything after that was, was, um, was rosy. <laughs> My experience of this is that it's more like coastal erosion it is you the tide just washes back in 
Yeah. And you just keep washing and washing and washing until you get it right. And so if, if, if someone was asking me about what it's going to take um, to bring something to life, build it to scale, and ensure that whilst you're building scale, you're not diluting impact, the the only um, the only description I could, adequate description I could find is it's going to feel like attrition. Yeah. yeah, you're just going to have to be more determined than anybody else. You're going to have to consider that this is something that you are not prepared to give up on. You will be relentless. Um, you will be tireless. You will be completely focused. And if you can capture that. Those are the things that are going to sustain you through the process. Mm. Um, it is it is very 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 rare that there is that road to Damascus moment when yeah. suddenly the enlightenment comes. It won't feel like that for most of us. And it's, I think the other thing I would say is, and I think it's um, I think it's an undervalued proposition with respect to social innovation. Um, I'm a firm believer that necessity is the mother of invention, mm. and and I think that and and it, it's it's happening in your part of the world from what I can see. Communities responding to services being withdrawn are often the best generators yeah, yep. of thriving social businesses, yeah. and they are also they also then lead communities and individuals to ask themselves a really important question. And the really important question they wind up with is, what else, if I can do that, what else can I do? Mm. And that expansive piece around, um, we have a commitment to our town, our home, our geography, our land, whatever it happens to be. Um, the, the private enterprise providers of service are withdrawing because they don't think that it's and some actuarial decision somewhere has meant that they're not going to invest in this location, but we still need the services, so we need to invent them ourselves. Yeah. And across and what I'm seeing in, in, in regional Queensland is a lot of that that kind of activity. And where it takes me to is the Western Isles of Western Scotland, mm. where these populations have done exactly the same thing. Yep. So they run the ferry service, they run the petrol station, they run the pub, they run the post office, they run all of these things. Um, and, and that is, these are often the most powerful drivers of, of social innovation generally. Mm. Um, but I think that we have, I think that we have a, we have a fixation and, and an incorrect fixation on invention and novelty instead of understanding that very often adaptation and re-engineering are the processes that that will more often lead to success mm. so I, I think that I think those attitudinal elements and those environmental for one of a better description that, that capacity to scan your environment and understand where the gaps are and what the solutions are to filling them and often it's not about inventing something new it's taking something that already existed and doing it either with greater social benefit or in a way that's better organized than, than someone else has yeah 
Some wonderful insights there, Jim. Thanks for those. So to finish off then, what books or resources would you recommend to our listeners? So this is this is current because it's front of me because um, because of what's happened with LA Kitchens. I would recommend if anyone wants some insight into a practitioner's experience and development, I would um, suggest that anyone who can get their hands on it should read Begging for Change by Robert Egger, mm. the man who established DC Central Kitchens and LA Kitchens. Yep. And because Robert has a singular view on lots of these matters, but um, but he has a wisdom around the way that this stuff, this the theories and the concepts and the practice is articulated. So from a practitioner's perspective, I would always, um, I think Begging for Change is an interesting read. But in terms of encouraging and provoking our thought, um, the, the Moral Limits of Markets by Michael Sandel is a beautiful work. It is a truly considered view about what the limitations are on the capital capitalist system. And I think, so it's the prevailing system. It's the one that we've all got to work under. Mm. But I think that we should understand um, the limitations that come with that. And, and a lot of Michael's thesis around this is with respect to um, the capitalist system being um, an, a pretty good um, diviner and divider of resources in a commercial sense, but doesn't have the same cascading impact with respect to um, to social impact, um, and is also has a tendency to be usurped. Yeah. So, and in terms of practice, and in terms of a, a, a kind of overarching view of the system, the prevailing system that the vast majority of his work under, um, I'd say um, Robert Egger and Michael Sandel. I think they're um, I think they're interesting books to read. They sound like great books, and I'll stick links through to them at the bottom of the article, Jim. So, Jim, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today and to, to get your, your insights from, from your vast experience. So thanks so much for, for sharing your, your insights and time, and we'll certainly look forward to following your journey as, as you move forward. Thanks, Tom. I am joining an illustrious group here, and I recognise that. It's a real treat to get the opportunity to speak with you. Um, and I will be, if the blog generates um, any interest in conversations, I'll be delighted if you pass on my details because I'll be happy to pick that up. Certainly will. I'll stick your details in the article and we'll touch base soon. Thanks again. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.